other closet next uh, door. Okay. Because they're in the closet recording their podcast. Life in the times of the coronavirus. I mean... They could be. I should not be making fun, because who knows? Maybe we got one of those child YouTuber things on the US. Yeah, well. they have a bunch of kids. They could be recording a podcast. They I don't could be. Know. Hey, party people. Welcome back to the Kumbini Pop Anime Podcast. I am your psychotherapist invading your dreams co-host, Leah. And I am your grandmother telling you the story of how I didn't meet your grandfather, Katarina. Oh my god. You may notice that we sound very different today because guess what? Katarina is with me in person! Woo! Yeah, she decided to visit me in these trying COVID times, you know? I've been alone in my apartment for so long and it was nice to have the company. And we've been alone doing appropriately social distance activities like watching YouTube in my apartment. Or in or in the case of uh, what inspired today's episode, binge-watching uh, anime films, for instance. Socially, responsibly. Yes, with my three pets. And today we have a special third co-host. His name is Einstein, and he is my little poodle. So... <laughs> Wow, right on cue. Did you guys hear that? He just <laughs> borked on cue. So he's with us. If you hear any scraggling noises in the background that I can't cut out and post, yeah. it's my dog. It's uh, it's Einstein telling us that little Timmy is indeed trapped in the well once again, but because of COVID, we shall not be venturing out to save him. Sorry, little Timmy. Wow, Einstein, you're so responsible. Anyways... If you're new here, we are Kombini Pop, your anime quick stop. Kombini Pop is an anime and manga review podcast where I know too much about anime. And I think Goku is a vegetable. And I, Leah, explain Japanese culture and seek to explore the thematic elements of the shows and books we read to Katarina in an effort to make her a weeaboo. Won't work. That's fine. <laughs> but we'll still talk about Japanese cartoons. Today we are doing a tribute to Satoshi Kon, because August 24th was the 10th anniversary of his death. And as a result, we stayed up till 3 a.m. watching all of his films in a row. It was a Konsensei kind of night. Born in Hokkaido, Japan on October 12th, 1964, Konsensei was known for his prolific directorial career for his works Paprika, Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, and his anime series Paranoia Agent. Which we did not watch. Yeah, we did not watch that show, but we did watch all of his films last night in honor of his, the anniversary of his passing, because Satoshi Kon is this amazing, influential director, not only in the anime industry, but also in the West as well. You'll have seen, or most people will have seen, the films Inception and Black Swan and other Western films that took heavy inspiration from the imagery, the plot, and the symbolism of Kon-sensei's work. We have mentioned already that August 24th was the 10th anniversary of his passing, and he died at the tragically young age of 46 to pancreatic cancer. At the time of his death, he was finishing his soon-to-be masterpiece, The Dream Machine, also known as Dreaming Machine, which he described in a 2008 interview as a road movie for robots. He's very well known for working with the animation studio Madhouse, and Madhouse eventually canceled production of the film Dream Machine, partially due to lack of finances and due to the fact that they could not find another director with the same level of animation ability as Satoshi Kon. Aw, that's unfortunate. A road movie for robots. That sounds, that sounds really good. 
That sounds that sounds like a fun movie for for instance starring Ewan McGregor and Robin Williams in that movie Rover. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, oh, okay. Never mind. Well, it sounds it sounds I, I would have made another argument where oh look another piece of Western media influence, but I don't know when Robots came out. Somebody fact check me. It, well, it wouldn't have been influenced by Dream Machine because Dream Machine didn't happen. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Like I would have made that argument had Dream Machine happened. Okay. But it didn't. Um. Anyways. It's funny how his last known work was called Dream Machine or Dreaming Machine because after binging all of his films in a row, Katarina and I decided to talk about how the theme of dreams is broached in Konsensei's work. You see a lot of these themes appearing over and over again. You see the theme dreaming to love in Millennium Actress. You see the dream to be an individual in Perfect Blue. You see the dream to make a family in Tokyo Godfather. So, uh, let's talk about dreams. Why not? We're about to unleash our, our union analysis onto the world of Bon Sensei's work. So let's go. Let's freaking go. Open up that dream journal. Watching his films, one of the most notable ways you see dreams portrayed is through the use of magical realism. Magical realism, for those that don't know, is a genre of fiction that distorts the perception and reality of the world of the protagonist to achieve narrative goals. And Konsensei's work is very heavily rooted in this. Whether it be a sci-fi based story, it is told through a magical realism lens, like with Paprika, because Paprika is all about therapists invading the dreams of their patients to cure them, but then there's so much more to that. Yeah, those of us uh, like me who are not as exposed to uh, Japanese media might recognize magical realism in works of art such as 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, one of the most popular works. Um, a lot of um, works of fiction that come out of Marquez's work are uh, heavily reliant on magical realism. And I think a really big key in that genre is that it's presented as being very matter-of-fact such as, of course this fantastical thing is happening. We don't really need to explain it. It's just part of life. Um, I think readers or viewers are supposed to just accept it and uh, go. It's funny that you say the readers, in the case of that, the books that you were speaking, have mm -hmm. to take it and go, when in a lot of Consensei's work, he will portray the narrative in a very matter-of-fact way that you have to accept. For example, with Millennium Actress, which was my favorite of his films that I watched yesterday. Absolutely incredible, stunning film. Yeah. The narrative takes place in an interwoven tale using scenes of films because the plot is about an aging actress being interviewed. So in her interviews, you will see scenes from movies that she started, and those scenes will act as the narrative dialogue for her expressing her past and her goal of finding her lost love. In that way, it switches seamlessly back and forth, and you see the interviewees and the cameraman switching back and forth between the literal reality of interviewing Chiyoko and the fictional reality of being swept up in the film. And it's presented very matter-of-fact. Like, immediately, they go to this other world where they're transported into this woman's narratives about her life and also being mixed up with a film. Yeah. And you have to accept that. And you have to catch on really quick. And I, when I was watching it, I was confused. <laughs> yeah. I, I, kind of, I kind of picked up on it 
I, I figured, oh, this is what they were doing. This is the journey through her life in film and in cinema. In a way, this film was like if Sunset Boulevard and Don Quixote had a baby. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because it very much plays on the imagination and the scope of fantasy when it comes to film, when it comes to your memory, because, of course, memory is imperfect, so why wouldn't an aging star use her films as a vehicle for her own memories and her own life experiences? Yeah, absolutely. And it's very interesting also to see how, specifically in that film, all of her memories and her narrative are tied deeply to her core dream of finding her lost love that she met when she was a child. Isn't that everybody's core dream? No. Finding their lost love. No. 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 Some people really want a sports car. Isn't that a love of going fast? No. For example, isn't that Sonic's core motivation that he just wants to go really fast because he loves it so much? I don't know. I didn't see the movie. You don't know anything about Sonic, do he's, you? He's a blue hedgehog. God. <laughs> Who's best friends with James Marsden. <laughs> and and um, is pursued by an egg in search of... Uh, an egg? Chaos. An egg? <laughs> Dr. Egg. That's right? not his name. Dr. Egg. <laughs> Dr. Egg, who has not his stolen name. Barack Obama's Chaos Emeralds. <laughs> I hate you. Sneaks Dr. Eggman. Oh, that's who Jim Carrey was. Okay. He doesn't look like an egg. I was confused. He's not supposed to look like an egg. I see. It's just the name. Oh, I thought, well, I thought it was like, because it's so cartoony. Stop talking. <laughs> anyway. Maybe Sonic was perfect blue. Stop talking. <laughs> Anyways, back to the topic of dreams. You see this topic... Again and again and again with his films. You see it show up again in Paprika and Perfect Blue. You see dreams as a metaphor for internet and technology and conveying the literal dreams in Paprika because that film is literally about going into your brain and seeing the creativity that it has to unlock. Yeah, and going back to the magical realism thing about how everything's presented as such a matter-of-fact happenstance, I really liked how in Paprika... Sometimes you couldn't tell when people were awake or when they were dreaming, especially at the end when everything goes to complete chaos and that crazy parade with the dolls happens and you really think for uh, a split second that uh, this is it, this is over. Um, especially with the double fake out with um, Paprika when she's awake. I forget her name when she's a doctor. Dr. Chiba. When Dr. Chiba's awake and then she's not awake and she goes, oh, this has been a dream too. And I, I was, I loved that. That was wonderful. Well, that was very much intentional because if you look at the history of dream interpretation, dream mythology, and the Japanese cultural attitudes surrounding dreams, there is a pattern of attitudes towards dreams that changes over time. In the prehistoric Jamon period of Japan, people believed dreams were a part of reality. Sure, why not? And then as society got slightly more sophisticated due to the philosophies of Confucianism, 
Buddhism and Taoism were introduced and then changed the social and mental attitudes towards this idea of dreams, which then made the acceptance of local and more foreign cultures become prevalent. Therefore, dreams suddenly became something that was interpreted a little bit more spiritually. It was a little bit less about dreams being a physical part of reality and more about how dreams were tied closer to supernatural beliefs. I see. So instead of, say, taking the Western approach of dreams are your brain telling you information in a strange way that you need to be able to process in your waking state, they thought that dreams were uh, the, the spirits telling you something. Yes. And then that, I, that Western interpretation of dreams, that mm -hmm. it's your brain telling you something, came later into society after you had the shogunate and the samurai ruling class. That makes sense. However, because of this cultural history with dreams, there is still a very unconscious and prevalent literary belief and artistic belief and artistic interpretation that dreams are part of reality. And you can see that symbol symbolized in Satoshi Kon's work. That's interesting, um, especially considering the, the principle of like the universal myth and the universal dream Yes, in Western uh, philosophies. That is a really cool thing that they both have in common. Yes. This idea that dreams and reality can merge together, again, go back into the magical realism element of his films and the way that he presents his narratives, particularly with the symbolic and mystical and whimsical imagery inputted in all his films. Even his most realistic film, Tokyo Godfathers, has that element of magical realism and uses Christmas as a metaphor for developing your own family and the virgin birth of Jesus, which we watched it in the dub. So I am not 100% sure if that is the actual story for Tokyo Godfathers, but we're gonna roll with it. I, th I think it was. Tokyo Godfathers uses the metaphor of the virgin birth to then bring in the series of events about finding a baby in a dumpster and yeah. making your own family. As, as one does when looking for the next addition to the family, visit your local hospital dumpster. You also see in the film Paprika that, to go back to your point about the film Paprika, you know how you had difficulty telling when things were real and things were a dream? Yeah. In all of the dream sequences, you see butterflies. You're right. There were lots of butterflies. And that is tied to an ancient Japanese myth uh, called the story of, and I may pronounce this incorrectly, Shuangzu and the butterfly, where Shuangzu dreamt that he became a butterfly and upon awaking wondered whether it was a human being who had just dreamt of being a butterfly or a butterfly which had dreamt that it had become a human being. And in that story, the moral is, can it be that my whole life is someone else's dream? Sure. Why not? So much of Western uh, media and storytelling and even some religious aspects have theorized that. So sure, why not? We could all just be somebody else's dream. Hell, it was in Alice in Wonderland, a very dreamy story. In Alice Through the Looking Glass, I should specify, because it was the sequel, it wasn't the first one. When the, uh, I believe it was the Red King is fast asleep and Tweedledum and Tweedledee tell Alice, don't you dare wake him, because if you do... We'll all die, because all we are are figments of his imagination. So sure, that's that's really cool, actually. Now, was there a significance to the color blue? Because I noticed all of the butterflies were blue. 
I could not find any significance to the blue butterfly specifically. It may have just been an artistic choice, but there definitely was a purpose for putting the butterfly in the film. And having that butterfly imagery also tied specifically to Paprika's character, particularly in that scene where that one doctor has her pinned like, yeah. like a specimen. That was real creepy. Gotta say, while the imagery of her being split open like a cocoon was very interesting, if you consider the fact that Dr. Um, Chiba had almost locked this fun-loving, extroverted piece of her away for the sole purpose of dream therapy... Like, so she could help men like Konakawa. It's interesting that when he splits the cocoon and there she is, it's almost like she's hatched. <laughs> she's... Because by the end of the film, Chiba doesn't necessarily need to be Paprika because, of course, she is Paprika. Yes. But that scene is almost like her hatching from her own chrysalis. Her own cute ginger, short-haired, butterfly-wing-having chrysalis. I didn't interpret it that way, but I could see that. I interpreted it more from the the psychological aspect of it, so I thought the whole Paprika, Dr. Shiba, and then being opened in the butterfly symbolized the difference between the id ego and the super ego, Yeah. because you end up seeing the three facets of her, because you have Paprika's face kind of split open, facing different directions, and then you have Chiba in the middle. Okay, okay, I can see how that would... And because the film is so tapped into the brain and these dream spaces my mind went straight to this is about your deeper layers of psychology and this is her activating that part of her brain but I think maybe these two things are just intrinsically linked yeah I don't I don't think that they're separate she's definitely a a piece of her that she's compartmentalized but paprika is a part of chiba like there is no real separation between the two and there is a, an argument to be made on your end because she's not the one at that point she's not the one that opens her uh, in my words chrysalis it's that creepy doctor guy who digs through her it's dream a, skin to pull her out it's a very famous scene yeah, uh, i'm sure i'm i have no doubt but i think by the end of the film Paprika and Chiba are no are not necessarily separate pieces of a whole like they are through most of the film where they are, they're seen talking to each other even though they recognize each other as being pieces of each other. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, especially because by the end of the film she gets her love interest which I will not spoil. Oh, we're not spoiling. Okay, good. Yeah, try not to spoil as much as possible because these are films, they're not series. That's fair. That's fair. She gets her, she gets a love interest and this love interest is very subtly and overtly at times referenced throughout the film, but you can see her fighting herself, especially in her more Dr. Chiba human moments from expressing her care for him. But when she is in the dream space as Paprika, she makes very overt comments about this gentleman yes. that are very obvious in hindsight, like, oh, wow, she really did have feelings for him. And then there's a whole point in the movie that I will not spoil. Chi- but- Chiba's like the Ben Shapiro version of herself because she wants to live her life purely facts and logic. That's probably why Paprika exists, to be her whimsical, dreamy side that gets to have fun and gets to do crazy things, whereas she must be this straight-laced, hair-in-a-bun, um, 
I appreciate your <laughs> listeners. I have my face in my hands. I appreciate your analysis, Katarina, but I don't appreciate the fact that you compared her to Ben Shapiro because Dr. Chiba is a good girl. <laughs> don't sully her name by comparing her to Ben Shapiro. But you, but you see my point that she has. It, it is a, a very interesting progression that through she is her own dream therapy because yes. because she heals herself through healing other people and unites the factions of herself. Which I I, I don't know. That's kind of a spoiler, but we've been talking about it for the last fifteen minutes, so I don't care. I don't really think that's a spoiler because it's shown in like the first ten minutes of the film that she is Paprika. True, but it could be a spoiler that she fixes herself. I mean, what does that even mean? Ooh. Exactly. Ooh. Exactly. Ooh, okay. Yeah, because okay. what, what does that even mean? Because okay. then you have to get into the plot of the film to really understand that. True. So, not a spoiler. But that does bring us to another aspect of Japanese culture and the, por- the portrayal of dreams with the concept of ikigai, which means that which makes one's life worth living. And this refers to family work or personal dreams. Things that inspire you and make you passionate for life. So, for example, we've already kind of touched upon it a little bit with Paprika, where Dr. Chiba comes into her own and learns to embrace that whimsical, fun-loving side of her that is Paprika, to where the two parts become the one. But you also see that in Perfect Blue. You see that in a very perverted and scary way. Yeah. As you follow Mima's journey from becoming a pop idol, which we will have another episode on pop idols because there's a lot to unpack in Perfect Blue from a cultural standpoint, but we'll have to put a pin on that. You see Mima trying to transition from a pop idol to an actress to fulfill essentially that dream that makes her life worth living and all the negative fallout from that. So if Paprika is like the high point of trying to pursue your your ikigai, then Perfect Blue is that low point and shows the struggles that it really takes to get there. Oh boy. Oh. You look like you got something to say. Uh, I'm just... <sighs> I liked Perfect Blue. I really liked it a lot. I just... It was so much. It was very... I know... Here's the thing. Earlier in the episode, you referenced that this movie has inspired Western media like Black Swan. I never saw Black Swan. Guys, I was one of the ten people on this earth that never saw or gave a damn about Black Swan. So I went in basically blind. I mean, I kind of knew about... Can I spoil Black Swan? Can you I, can spoil Am I allowed Black to spoil Swan. Black Swan? Okay. I kind of knew that it was always Natalie Portman and that she was always kind of crazy and that Mila Kunis was a figment of her imagination, but I didn't know. But Mila Kunis is also real. Oh, <laughs> she's, see? She's real in Black Swan. I thought she was always fake. I thought that was the point. No, she... So in Black Swan, Natalie Portman's character puts all of her insecurities and her anger and her jealousy onto Mila Kunis, and she will hallucinate this person. So she made up a whole second Mila Kunis? It's, she's just like a, she hallucinates yeah. Mila Kunis when she's having negative but that's But that's what I'm saying, like she's, she's hallucinated this not Mila Kunis. That she thinks is the real Mila Kunis, but it's not her. Yes. Okay. Well, yes. Th- completely irrelevant. As part of their rivalry. <laughs> Okay. My, well, that's interesting, given the ending of Perfect Blue. Anyway. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. 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 My, my point is, I went in here not really knowing that it was going to turn into a quasi-Silence of the Lambs thing. I liked that, by the way, that the crew uh, 
of Mima's TV series was basically filming Japanese Silence of the Lambs. That was really funny. Yeah, I really enjoyed that, too. <laughs> I thought that was a nice touch, and I don't even know if that was intentional, but probably. It, it, it very well... I should have looked that up. ...might have been, but even if it wasn't, I think it was, it was interesting that they have played with psychology that much, where it's almost become a recognizable trope because of films like Silence of the Lambs, and I guess Perfect Blue... The, the state of becoming, the state of, here we go with the butterfly, of evolving from one state of being into another where you can blossom, right? Where you can grow and be your best self. And see, you know, in Paprika, you have the very literal butterflies that show up in yeah. the film. But I also get that sense from Perfect Blue because of the way that I will refer to her as other Mima. Okay. Moves and interacts with real Mima because she kind of floats around and dances around. That's and there's true. a very famous scene that I that has been gifted where you see Mima floating on oh my god why is the word escaping street lights wow <laughs> i forgot what a street light is where you see her floating from street light to street light and to me in my mind that has a very butterfly-esque movement to it yes i would agree and also invokes that i that old story of of zoo with the butterfly and like is this a real and is this a dream and that's very much played up in perfect blue because if you know black swan because that was already referenced you know that the film is very much about what is real what's in my mind with a very negative suspenseful twist yeah because you are worried about yeah. Mima the whole time yeah you are worried it's basically did i the the story of uh zoo with the butterfly right did Mima dream that she was a pop idol and wake up to find that she was crazy? Or was she always crazy? And the dream was that she was sane, living a successful career as a pop idol. Or, or... Did she dream she was an actress when she was a pop idol? <laughs> or did she dream she was a pop idol when she was an actress? Did she dream the the Japanese television show? Or was it the reality? Exactly. Who, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? You gotta watch the film to find out, because we know. Yeah, we can't We can't really spoil it. We won't um, spoil it, but... I will say, this This might be... It's completely unrelated to the concept of dreams and things like that, because I really like where this is going, but I have to take a minute. I have to say something. But that really ugly fish face motherfucker <laughs> that was staring at her the whole time. The and I felt bastard. bad. I felt bad, because I saw him the first thing, where he was crouched in that weird little hunchback position. He pretended to hold her in the palm of his hand. Oh, that imagery is so fucking I good. I didn't, I didn't like it. It was, I mean, it was, thematically it was great. Uh, for the sake of the story, it was wonderful, but I didn't like it. Like, it, something inside of me was repulsed. The point is, is that I felt bad, because instantly I was like, ew, icky, he's the bad guy. He's, because we had read the, the two-sentence blurb about how, oh, it's an actress who's being stalked, blah, blah, blah. And I was, I was certain, as soon as I saw his ugly, fishy as, face. As soon as he appears, you know the ugly bastard there was, is the there stalker. Was, there was something in my gut that was like, ooh, gross, it's you. And then I felt bad, because I thought, hey, I shouldn't think of people who are ugly as being inherently wrong. Like, I mean, I mean, there are many people who aren't conventionally attractive, including myself, who are perfectly decent. Well, perhaps I'm up for debate. But there are many people who are conventionally oh <laughs> But there are many people who are conventionally unattractive who are also wonderful, decent, loving people. And I felt guilty for assuming that that man, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Me something, I don't remember his name. Was it, his username I think was Me Mania? Yeah, that's it, Mr. Me Mania. Yeah, <laughs> he, 
He was really gross. He was disgusting. He was he was really gross. <laughs> and I felt bad because I had assumed it would be him because he was gross looking because he stared at her with the them them dead eyes, them doll eyes that shine all black and lifeless like. Yeah, but for real though. <laughs> but but like he, he really did he, have those eyes. He did. Like I yes, I'm quoting Jaws, but that's real. <laughs> that's what he was. <laughs> And he and he almost was the perfect predator because he he not to spoil anything big in the movie, but everything he did was at this very predatorial, creepy way of moving. Uh, the 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 way he looked at her like he owned her, like she should be thanking him for his behavior. There are this isn't really a spoiler, but there are several murders that occur in this film, and <laughs> with every single one of them, you get the feeling that he's expecting gratitude from her. And, of course, she doesn't get it or give it because she's normal. And she doesn't even know who he is because that film also, as an aside separate from the dream conversation, is definitely um, also heavily about the way fans perceive celebrities and form parasocial relationships. And then they have these ideas about celebrities and they create these images of them in their head and they feel like celebrities owe them things and they feel like celebrities should be grateful just for their patronage. And then, bam, boom, really, they don't know who the fuck you are because... Because of course they don't. Because who are you? (laughs) Who are you? I'm sorry that you you spent $3,000 on your goddamn glow sticks and that you you paid money for her t-shirts and for her... Whatever it is, the the merchandise. Mima doesn't owe you shit. Mima doesn't owe you shit. No celebrity owes you shit. No, 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 dare I say it, no Twitch streamer owes you shit either. What Twitch streamer are you referencing? All of them. I don't care who they are. I don't care if they're, uh, I don't, I don't care if it's, if it's a, if it's a dude, if it's a chick, if it, if, if whatever, you know? Like, nobody owes you anything. That's the big takeaway. Mr. Me Mania was just some creepy fishy simp, which is interesting because she had fish and people watch pop idols and actresses like they're fish in a bowl and they monitor their every move. Mm-hmm. And and what did this man look like? A big old fish. <laughs> to me, every time the fish were shown, I realized later at the end of the film, I won't spoil spoil why the fish, the literal reason why the fish were there. Yeah. I felt like every time the fish appeared in a scene, it served the same purpose as the butterflies in Paprika, where it indicated this is a re- this is real, this is a dream, this is real, this is a dream, and it tied into that negative aspect of Mima just wanted to be an actress. Yeah, she wanted to move on with her life. She wanted to mature. She wanted to grow, evolve. AKA similar themes that were found in not only Paprika, but in Millennium Actress. It, it is the, the act of transformation that uh, everybody, I don't care who you are in this life, goes through. And what happened? She was almost denied it. <laughs> because people in her life, especially Mr. Me Mania, decided, no, you owe me. <laughs> I want you to stay static and stay the same for me forever. Because I like you. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. And I felt bad for him for about three seconds. So there is another type of Japanese cultural dream that is touched in Kon-sensei's work. And that is the concept of Hatsuyume, which is the first dream one has in the new year. Traditionally, that kind of dream 
would foretell the luck of the dreamer in the ensuing year. Hmm. And I think Tokyo Godfathers is the epitome of that type of cultural dream because it's, I think, even referenced... It, it takes place at the end of the year. Like, it's after Christmas and into New Year's because one of, like, the last ha- uh, haikus said by Hana was about the New Year. So I would, I would agree. Yes, because Hana multiple times in the film mentions... It's going to be the new year. My dream is to be a mother. I want to be able to have a family. I want to be able to do all these things because I didn't know my family. By specifically going out of its way to mention the new year. Multiple times. Multiple times, despite the fact that it is Christmas. Yes, it is five days before the new year, but it is still Christmas in a film that is taking heavy Western inspiration for Christmas because that's not normally how Christmas is even celebrated in Japan. I figured. It's more of a lover's holiday. It's kind of like a Valentine's Day in Japan. Ooh. So to see it have all this heavy Christian influence, but then also hammer home the point, hey, it's the new year. Hey, I have this dream to have a baby. To me, that symbolizes that Tokyo Godfather is all about Hana's Hatsuyume, but also, I forget the other characters' names, the young the young girl and the man. Miyuki and Gin. Gin yes. was the old man. Or no, middle-aged? Middle-aged. What was he, 50, 60? He was a dad. Old. That's not old. Um, Gin and Miyuki. Gin and Miyuki. I feel like you also see what their New Year dream is going to be, too, which is Gin's is to reunite with his family and Miyuki's is to also reunite with her father. Does she really? Yeah. There were there were a couple of times. I mean, she went out of her way to call him when she noticed the the want ad in the newspaper. She realized, "Oh, I missed because the whole part of the reason why she's homeless in the first place is because she thinks she's not missed and because she thinks that the only reason her family would want to see her again is to arrest her, which isn't true because she finds the want ad and she call and after she does that in the cafe she goes to a payphone and she calls her family and her father picks up and he and he lovingly is concerned for her over the phone he goes you know is is that you yuki is that you to which she hangs up and cries she doesn't really have the nerve to do anything about it but by the end of the film when uh, things happen <laughs> i just realized we can't spoil it it's evident, I think, by the end of the film that it is her dream to be welcomed back into the family that she she didn't throw away, but felt that she had to leave yes. for specific reasons. Because of events. Yeah, because of events. Because it to, to explain it would be a spoiler. And just that ending scene with... And this isn't a spoiler because I won't describe it in any more detail. There is an ending scene where Hana flies through the air. Yeah. Yes. With a parachute. And the stars glitter and the lights shine on her. And it takes on, despite the fact that Tokyo Godfather is probably his most realistic work, it still has that element of magical realism. What is reality and what is fiction? Because you just have that moment of triumph and it's beautiful. I have goosebumps because that definitely was one of my favorite scenes in his films, despite the fact that Tokyo Godfather is not my favorite of his works. I would agree. It was just a very magical moment where everything comes together in this beautiful way where you just go, was that real? Was that fake? Yeah. It's real for the sense of the film, but yeah, just the imagery really evokes that feeling. Yes. I think it's, in a way, 
it, it is a very good example of magical realism in his films because the line between what is accepted as our reality and what is accepted as this film's reality are very easily blurred. You can almost mistake it as a viewer. You can almost not see it if you're not paying attention. But the film is so zany. The, the twists and the turns in this film are all over the place that no normal, no normal event would over uh, a few days period, say from Christmas to New Year's. Th th this is impossible. <laughs> but it's, it's the most subtly influenced by magical realism, I think. And I think as a result, it, it works very well. It's a very successful piece of art. Although it wasn't my favorite of his films, I think. Well, we can get to that now. So we're at the big question. Do you recommend his works to non-anime fans? Yes. Uh, unequivocally, yes. <laughs> I think um, Western audiences are not going to have a problem with this in any way. I think it transcends the medium of animation in so many ways. Because I th we were having this conversation yesterday. There's so much that you can do in animated storytelling that you can't do all the time in a live action film. And we talked about this in reference to both of our favorite ones, Millennium Actress. Yeah, we both agreed that that was his best work. Hands down. And Millennium Actress works because it's an animated film. Yes. I've seen I've seen western films that are in live action that play with similar ideas that are done very successfully in live action. But I think this one was so beautiful and had such a giant scope of fantasy in it and it worked because it was an animation and I think it's one of his most beautiful films. I mean, Paprika was beautiful to look at. Paprika yes. was the most vibrant in terms of color, in terms of animation, I think. It was also the most... It was his last work that he completed before he died. Yes. So it's also in the most recent technology, which I think is yeah. why Paprika looks the way it does. Paprika was beautiful. There, he, Paprika was beautiful. But I think Millennium Actress was gorgeous. I think... The way it was painted, the way it was drawn, the way it was animated, everything was so fluid and expressive. The expressions in Satoshi Kon's work. Oh my god. They obviously peak with Tokyo Godfather because the dialogue is so quick that they have to be constantly moving, but... But see, Millennium... I, didn't even, I didn't even think Tokyo Godfather's animation was as good as Millennium Actress. I think Millennium Actress's was better, in my opinion. Are you sure it wasn't the art style that you liked more of no, Millennium Actress? No, no. I'm sure. I think there was, uh, in my opinion, I thought it was more fluid in the movement and in the expression than Tokyo Godfather. Now, there are people who may have a better, more trained eye who would disagree with me, but I think, to me, the movement was more visually pleasing in Millennium Actress. Not just the art style, although I, I think the art style is beautiful in all four of his films. But, yeah, he, you, he did so much with his medium, it's gorgeous. I think anybody... Well, maybe not all ages. <laughs> um, Definitely not all ages. Not yeah. all his films are appropriate. Yeah, no, 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 no. Maybe, maybe everyone over the age of maybe 15, 16 can see this film. Uh, Millennium Actress. Can can anyone see Millennium Actress? There's I, think, I think teenagers could handle the themes in Millennium Actress. I think you should go back as an adult to re-watch it. Oof. Millennium Actress just... 
It I, hit so close to home. Yes. I sobbed at I, the end. I think that you could probably watch Millennium Actress at uh, most stages of your life. And, and relate get, to Chiyoko. And get something new out of it, especially young creatives, uh, people who are our age, you know, mid-20s, early 30s, could relate one way. And I'm sure when I am in my 40s, I can watch it again and relate to her in a different way. And when I'm at death's door, <laughs> I'll probably be able to look back and... And admire the fact, because the whole point of the film is a life well lived. What is your core drive for living an exciting, fulfilling life? And not to spoil... last line. Not to spoil the film, but it isn't what you think it is. It really isn't. And it was so fitting once it's explained. You go, yeah, you know what? This is what I want my life to be like, too. Because she lives such an incredible life. Her films span, like, they're... she does so much. I think a lot of people, if you've never seen an anime film in your life, if you've never seen anything, yeah, sure, jump in. You'll love it. You'll oh love God, it. Watch Millennium Actress, please. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hell, if you've never seen a foreign film in your life, go watch Millennium Actress. It. <laughs> It'll be a good way to dip your toes because I, yeah. one of the reasons why I really love Millennium Actress is as someone who's interested in Japanese culture, Millennium Actress in addition to all the other themes we have discussed and the other parts of the plot we have touched upon a little bit, it's also a metaphor for Japanese history of the early 1900s. And actually even medieval history because you do you do see things with the shogunate. And yeah, it was it, very well researched. It was very well written. It was very obviously a vehicle to both tell history and through a modern lens and a modern interpretation while also telling the literal story that it wanted to tell and the metaphorical story that it wanted to tell. So it was just a feast for your eyes on all levels. And, you know, you could you could dissect that film for ages because you could just attack it from a bunch of different angles and every interpretation would be correct. I think, I think all four of his films are very digestible. If you've never seen a, a film, an anime film, that said, start with Paprika... Or Millennium Actress, in Paprika, my opinion. Paprika, if you want... Science fiction. Science fiction and something fun and exciting, because there definitely was a scene where Katarina and I just sat clapping. Yeah. Like we were an audience in a theater. <laughs> it, it was wonderful. <laughs> so if you want something that's like exciting and it's going to get you hype, watch Paprika. If you want something... That, that said. Touching. Yeah. And something soulful... Watch Millennium Actress. I will say, maybe start with Millennium Actress, because I... Not not to spoil anything, but there were three. Three separate weird fetish things that happened in Paprika. Oh my god. It, <laughs> I don't really think it was for the... Per- Hello, Einstein. Are you saying... Do you have thoughts about Paprika? Einstein didn't like it. He was asleep. Einstein had no interest in Paprika. He no. was having his own dreams, but continue <laughs> with what you were saying no i mean i think the 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 one that's easiest to dip your toes in is probably millennium actress because once you just accept that the story is a blend of her real life and the films that are used as a vehicle for her memories if you accept that they are so entwined that you just kind of have to take it at face value it's the most easy to understand oh, beautiful film just beautiful yes beautiful film I think anyone who watches it, even if you're that person who's like, cartoons are for kids, 
I think if you if you watch it, you'll get something out of it. There was one thing from his final blog post that I thought would be very apropos to describe my feelings about Kwon Sensei's work. And if you didn't know, he used to run a blog before, obviously, his untimely death. So, regarding his stay at Musashino Red Cross Hospital, he said, I just wanted to go home to my own house, the house where I live. In watching his films, he made me feel like I was home. With all of the whimsy, with all of the heart, with all of the Madhouse Productions team's ability to show the different facets of humanity, good, bad, evil, obsessed, happy, in love, it made me feel like I was home. And he, his untimely death was a tragedy for the anime community because he shared only a glimpse of his creative genius and this was what he was able to share with the world. So I don't think me or Katarina can say this enough. Go watch his films. If you love anime, you will love his films. And if you don't like anime, you will love his films because like Katarina said, it transcends the medium of animation and tells these universal stories about going after your dreams and achieving them. You may get pushbacks. It may be scary at times. You may feel like you're alone, but go after your dreams because that's what Kwon Sensei would want you to do. So. Well said. Well said. Good. Good show. I like that. That was, that was actually good. I'm being serious. I'm actually being serious. That was good. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you listeners for listening to our tribute to Satoshi Kon. Which of his works are your favorite if you've seen any of his films? Do you think there was anything we missed on the topic of dreams? Do you think there was anything that we could have discussed more? Or do you have any thoughts that you want to share with us? You know, let us know in the comments on WordPress or YouTube. Social links are in the description with every episode. You know, tweet at us. DM us. We have Instagram. We keep making little snippets of our episodes. You know, interact with us as much as you want. And this has been your co-host, Leah. And this has been your co-host, Katarina. Thank you for listening to Combini Pop, your anime quick stop. Bye! Bye!